Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number six, the conclusion to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Well, we'll finally finish 1 Samuel chapter 2 today. Even though, uh, really, there's enough here. We could probably spend another week at least. But we need to move forward. Um, Last time we met, we were informed about the dysfunctional, apostate condition of the priesthood of Israel and given examples of the sorts of, of very unsavory things that uh, Eli, Israel's high priest, allowed to occur on his watch, even among his own sons. The two priests, Hophni and Pincus, would harass and strong-arm the worshippers who came from all over the twelve tribal territories to the tabernacle that was located at Shiloh at this time in order that they would follow the commands and procedures of the Levitical sacrificial system. But what we ended with in verse 17 was that as terrible as it was for God's priests to treat these worshippers in such a shabby way, it was tantamount to suicide for them to treat the sacrifices set aside as holy to the Lord with such contempt by taking the meat right off the altar fire, sticking their long meat fork into the stew pots of the worshippers to skewer whatever meat stuck to it, they were robbing Yehovah. Let's take it up from there. Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to start reading at verse 18. That is uh, page 300 in the complete Jewish Bible. Starting at verse 18. But Shmuel ministered in the presence of Adonai, wearing a linen ritual vest, even though he was only a child. Each year his mother would make him a little coat, bring it when she came up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elchanah and his wife and say, May Adonai give you children from this woman because of the boy you have loaned to Adonai. Then they would go home. So Adonai took notice of Hannah, and she conceived and bore three more sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Shmuel grew in the presence of Adonai. Now when Eli was very old, he heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel, and that they were having sex with the women doing service at the door of the tent of meeting. And he asked them, Why are you doing things like this? I am hearing bad reports about you from all these people. No, my sons. I don't hear Adonai's people spreading a single good report. If a person commits a sin against another person, the judges can mediate between them. But if a person commits a sin against Adonai, who can intercede for him? However, they wouldn't pay attention to what their father said. Because Adonai had decided to kill them. The child Shmuel kept growing and gaining favor both with Adonai and with the people. And a man from God 
came to Eli. And he told him, Here is what Adonai says. Didn't I reveal myself to your ancestors' clan when they were in Egypt, serving as slaves in Pharaoh's household? Didn't I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense and wear a ritual vest in my presence? Didn't I assign to your neighbor, your ancestors' clan all of the offerings of the people of Israel made by fire? So, why are you showing such disrespect for my sacrifices and offerings, which I ordered to be made at my dwelling? Why? Do you show more honor to your sons than to me? Making yourselves fat with the choicest parts of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Therefore, Adonai, the God of Israel, says, I did indeed say that your family and your father's family would walk in my presence forever. But now, Adonai says, forget it. I respect those who respect me, but those who despise me will meet with contempt. The day is coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's family so that no one in your family will live to old age. At a time when Israel is prospering, you will see a rival in my dwelling and never will anyone in your family live to old age. Still, I won't cut off every one of your men from my altar because that would make your eyes grow dim and you could waste away. Nevertheless, all your descendants will die young. Your sign that this will occur will be what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Pincus. They will both die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do what I want, what I intend. I will make his family faithful. He will serve in the presence of my anointed one forever. Everyone left in your family will come and prostrate himself before him for a silver coin or a loaf of bread and say, please, won't you give me some work as a priest so I can have a scrap of bread to eat? We're told... Well, let me back up. The statement that Samuel, Shmuel, ministered, or better served, in the presence of Adonai, is at least partly to give us a contrast between the nature and behavior of Samuel as opposed to Eli's two worthless sons. Now, ministering or serving before the Lord is actually a Hebrew expression. And it means that Samuel was serving God directly in a divinely acceptable way. Here the narrator of Samuel is telling us that Samuel had a growing intimate relationship with the Lord from a pretty early age. And while we might reasonably question whether Samuel ought to have been doing priestly functions at five or six years old, even so we can see that young children can grasp the fundamentals of who God is and begin to form a close bond with Him. So it's never too early to start teaching our children about the Lord and even to teach them that service to Him is an essential part 
of that relationship. Now we're told that even though he was just a small child, Samuel wore the typical priest garb of that era, white linen. Now while the complete Jewish Bible speaks of Samuel as wearing a linen ritual vest, in fact the Hebrew says he wore a linen ephod. Okay. Technically an ephod was something that only the high priest wore. However, over time that outer garment that the regular priests served in, it came to be called an ephod. So Samuel wasn't putting on a miniature high priest outfit. Now normally, a priest or a Levite wouldn't start their required service in the tabernacle before their 25th birthday. However, because Samuel was a biblically rare combination of of being a Levite as well as a Nazarite for life, we find him learning the priestly ropes as a growing child who thus regularly needed larger clothes. So each year when Elkanah's family would journey to Shiloh for their family religious festival, Hannah would bring a new coat with her for her young growing son. Now naturally little Shmuel would visit and spend time with his mother and his father. So at that time when they came at their annual pilgrimage to the sacred tent, and equally as naturally, so would Eli encounter Samuel's parents and speak with them. And upon each occasion, Eli would pronounce a blessing over Elkanah and Hannah, such that Hannah would produce more children as a reward for her entrusting Samuel to the priesthood and to God. The blessing proved pretty effective. As Hannah had three more sons and two daughters for a total of six kids, counting Samuel. <clears throat> Yet the writer of 1 Samuel clarifies in verse 21 that while Eli mouthed that blessing over them, it was the Lord's decision and His grace that made that blessing come alive. In other words, the human word spoken by the high priest had no inherent power or magical quality to them. Now starting in verse 22, we see that some time passes. Eli was growing quite old And it came to his attention that in addition to all the other contemptuous things his sons were doing, now they're even using women who served at the tabernacle for their own sexual pleasures. And these women, these these were not temple prostitutes that were so common to the Canaanite religious services. Rather, they were Levites who performed the menial duties around the tabernacle and they were probably bullied into submission by Pincus and Hophni. The sex acts were not actually being done inside the sanctuary tent proper but rather nearby in some anti uh, rather anti-room. All right? But to do that kind of an abominable thing in such close proximity to God's dwelling place brought defilement And that was beyond the pale. And Eli confronts his sons 
with this information. And he asks, at least rhetorically, why are you doing this? He goes on to say that in recent times he hasn't heard even one good report about them. Everything was negative and troublesome. But, you know, his son's fate, their fates, had already been sealed. So they paid no attention to their father. The reason for their refusal to repent and obey, though, is a familiar one, especially in the Old Testament. God decided to kill them. In other words, God hardened their hearts so that they would continue to reject God, to reject His instruction and reproof, and thus they would merit their demise due to their great and unrepentant sin. Hophni and Pincus's fates, as well as Elie's, were already sealed by the Lord. There was nothing they might do that would reverse that situation. This reminds us of the Pharaoh of Egypt having his heart hardened by Jehovah so as to bring wrath upon him that would ultimately lead to the release of Israel. And interestingly enough, in a few verses, we're going to see that the Lord chastised Eli using Eli's, uh, rather, uh, Israel's experience in Egypt as the context for that. But these judgments of God upon the priesthood also reminds us of Hannah's prayer. Because we see some of these attributes of God, the ones that Hannah spoke about, we see those attributes in action. We see God killing some of his own people, Hophni and Pincus. And we see him deposing even his own mighty high priest, Eli, and bringing him low as a means to establish a, a just balance to the situation. Then in verse 25, Eli pronounces another divine reality. And it was in the form of a question. And, and this question has much deeper implications than it might seem on the surface. So I want you to pay really close attention to this part. Eli says to his two sons, Don't you know that if a man commits a sin against another man, that the Lord judges that situation and then mediates between them. However, when a man sins against God, who can possibly intercede and mediate for him? Now, there's a little disagreement among scholars about precisely how to translate that verse. So, as you're looking at your Bibles, you're going to see it vary just a bit. Our complete Jewish Bible takes one view, and frankly, most other translations cite a different view. All right? The first view is that this statement means that the human judges of the court mediate between men. And the second view is that God is the judge and mediator between men. Looking at the Hebrew, I'm Honestly, not sure how to justify that first view in order to arrive in that conclusion. Because what you then have to do is translate the word Elohim into judge to arrive at that solution. And that's just not accurate. 
In other words, most literally this verse says that if a man commits a sin against another man, then Elohim judges and mediates. Elohim is the standard word for God throughout the Old Testament. But I think what these translators of the complete Jewish Bible are doing is trying to get across what this statement effectively means. And I agree with them. Or even better, how it effectively operates on earth, as opposed to what it might seem to say. When a man sins against another man, it's referring to a civil judicial matter among human beings. If, for example, one man steals from another man, one man injures another man, or borrows money and he doesn't return it, and so on, then the idea is that God has already set up a justice system to deal with it. It's called the law. Those 613 laws and commands in the Torah, mostly, not entirely, but mostly, deal with matters of human interactions. The Lord, within the framework of those laws, created human government. As then he uses human government as his primary means to deal with human on human matters. An official, a human mediator of that human government, is seen as having the divine authority and the legal standing to administer justice. But of course, it ought to be according to how God has set it down in his Torah. Since the judicial decision ideally would be based upon God's ordained principles and procedures that were designed to mediate between men, then from a certain aspect it can be said that God is actually doing the judging and arbitrating through this human government official that's usually called a judge. Further, since one man stealing from another or one man cheating another, is on the one hand a fleshly issue between humans, but on the other, it's also a spiritual issue. Because the law that was broken was a moral one, set down by God, then there are both physical and spiritual ramifications that must be addressed, even to offenses and trespasses that happen between men. Physically speaking, the fleshly aspect, there are certain punishments and consequences that a human judge can order to be applied, such as making restitution, plus an additional sum as a penalty. It's pretty standard. As for the spiritual aspect, the criminal could go and offer a proper sacrifice at the altar. It had to, of course, be administered by the Levite priesthood. And then he could settle that part of the matter that offends God in the realm of the heavenlies. So both sides are taken care of. However, says Ellie, it's one thing to have a human mediator, a government official, assigned to deal with a problem or a criminal offense between two men. But... What human being could possibly be called upon to mediate a dispute between 
a man and God. And that, folks, is at the very heart of the meaning of and mankind's desperate need for a redeeming mediator that we commonly call a savior. You see that here? That's at the heart of Eli's question to his sons. Now sometimes it's said that the high priest was to be the mediator between God and man, but that's a, that's a mischaracterization of his role. Okay. The high priest could sprinkle blood on the mercy seat once per year. And along with the other priests, he could perform sacrifices of, of atonement on a daily basis. But atonement is not mediation. The high priest can't argue for his people. The high priest can't bargain with God or settle issues between God and man. This is the reason that we had both Moses and Aaron living and operating simultaneously, each of them being the highest authority in their particular sphere of influence. Aaron was in charge of making atonement for men according to the procedure set down in the law. Moses was in charge of mediation between God and man. Now we have all directly sinned against God and therefore he has a personal cosmos-sized bone to pick with every one of us. God also has an open and shut ironclad legal case against us all based on his justice system. In that any sin directly against him is by definition so grievous that the only possible penalty is our death. Mankind, <laughs> mankind's already been tried and convicted and sentenced to death back at the Garden of Eden. Both physical and spiritual death. Who then could possibly have the authority and standing to jump into this fracas between God and man and assume the role of a mediator or an intercessor and save us from God's severity. That is where Hophni and Pincus find themselves. Therefore, Elise trying to get them to hear that they're in the gravest danger by their regularly stealing God's holy sacrifices, leading the set-apart people that they're supposed to be serving and protecting into false doctrines, leading them into man-made rituals, and by desecrating the holy grounds of the Lord's tent sanctuary by having illicit sex there, they have committed the worst possible sins directly against the Lord. And Eli, even as the high priest who in this era was the highest human government official on earth. He had insufficient standing. He had no authority to mediate between God and those two wayward sons of his. Further, as we're informed in Leviticus and Numbers, 
There is no available atonement for a high-handed sin, which is what Hophni and Pincus were guilty of. So Eli couldn't even make a sacrifice for his sons and save them, or at least try to get atonement for them. There was nothing Eli could do for his sons except to warn them. This problem of finding someone worthy and with sufficient authority to mediate between man and God was known and understood ages even before Eli presented this question to his sons here in 1 Samuel. In fact, in Bible history, Moses was the first mediator who had sufficient standing and authority to intercede between God and man. And naturally, only the Lord himself could have given that standing to Moses. How often we read in the Torah of the people of Israel during their arduous wilderness journey committing idolatry directly against the Lord or complaining directly against the Lord and Moses rushes to stand between them and God to keep these ignorant rebels from being summarily destroyed by the now incensed Yehovah. Yet even the first... God-appointed mediator Moses was limited in what he could accomplish as a mediator. He could postpone God's wrath upon the people. But he couldn't eradicate their sins. Job, who came far earlier than Moses, came to understand this common deadly dilemma that all mankind faced. But at the same time, it was also a dilemma that remarkably few men ever recognized or considered. To this day, our era, only a relative handful of human beings give any thought to our precarious position before God and our want of a mediator to intercede for us. Listen to Job in Job 9.30. Listen to this pleading he makes. He says, Even if I washed myself in melted snow, if I cleanse my hands with lye, you, God, would still plunge me into the muddy pit till my own clothes would detest me. Because he, God, is not merely human like me. There is no answer that I could give him if we were to come together in court. There is no arbitrator between us who could lay his hand on us both. And here in 1 Samuel, we have Eli realizing this exact thing in the context of trying to save his son's lives. But... Just as God, at that perfect moment in time, gave Moses to his people to mediate between God and man, and even though the scope of Moses' intercession was relatively narrow and it lasted for just a few years until he died, now God has given us a new and permanent mediator who can intercede between us and God And the scope of his mediation is almost unlimited. And that long 
awaited mediator was indeed a man, a human. But only by also being God could he be a mediator who eradicated the sins that caused the trouble between mankind and God in the first place. Yeshua, our Savior, has answered Eli's question. He's answered Job's question that hung unanswered over the doomed heads of the human race for thousands of years. Listen to what St. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5. Paul says, For God is one. Therefore there is but one mediator between God and humanity, Yeshua the Messiah, himself human, who gave himself as a ransom on behalf of all, thus providing testimony to God's purpose at just the right time. You know, I'm so taken by how early in the Bible we find this issue raised for the need of a Savior. A necessarily human mediator that could stand between God and man as our only hope. And it just underlines what a terrible thing has happened over the centuries within our Christian faith that we would accuse the Older Testament of being primitive, irrelevant, dead and gone, supposedly because it never addressed the issue of salvation. Because here, in the Old Testament, we find the entire and indispensable basis and foundation for everything that was pointed towards in the New Testament. And the vast majority of the church has no idea it's even here. And then suddenly, in 1 Samuel 2.26, this diatribe against Eli's family is interrupted. And Samuel is again referred to as a child who gained great favor with God and man. Samuel is placed here as the antithesis of Hophni and Pincus. Whereas they had lost all favor with God that would never be recovered. They had become nothing but a plague upon God's people who simply came to worship God at his sanctuary. But Samuel was becoming highly regarded by Jehovah. And the people of Israel saw Shmuel's spiritual gifting and his faithfulness and, and, and his love for them. Well, some more time passes. And in verse 27, we read about a man of God who suddenly appears to Eli. And in Hebrew, this man of God is Ish Elohim, which literally means man of God. But what's this referring to? Is this an angel? Is this the Lord pre-incarnate? What is it? Well, Ish Elohim was by now becoming a somewhat standard term for prophet. A prophet acted a lot like an angelic messenger and that they would bring a direct oracle from God to man. But... This prophet was a human. He was not a spiritual being. Okay? And Ish Elohim was not a divine apparition. Rather, he was a man 
whom God found faithful and trustworthy to deliver his message. And what we will find, and we need to pay a lot of attention to, is that prophets give God's word in the first person. In other words, they simply quoted God. Apparently word for word. Prophets didn't paraphrase God's word. And they weren't giving their opinions when they spoke in terms of I the Lord or some kind of jargon like that. Now this is important. There are many important rules about reading the Bible and one is to see the difference between God speaking, men speaking God's words, and then men speaking their own words. There is a hierarchy of perfection in this. Men in the Bible, even the apostles, can make statements in their own words, but they simply do not carry the same weight as God's direct oracles. Thus, we must always consider that as we study God's word and we struggle to properly apply it all to our lives. When we see that rather standard biblical prophet oracle formula, when the prophet says to Eli, here is what God says. See, this is the signal that what we're about to hear is the Lord word for word. And God, through this prophet, begins to take Eli apart by building a case against him. The Lord commences by reminding Eli that God came to Eli's clan, the clan of Aaron is what he's speaking of, going on 400 years ago in Egypt. And God says that he chose the clan of Aaron to be his priests who are given this awesome privilege of approaching the altar of burnt offerings, of burning incense before the Lord, and of producing the line of high priests. That's what this mention of wearing the ritual vest is getting at. And all this in perpetuity. The Lord reminds Eli that even the source of meat and produce that sustains he and his family comes from those same sacrifices offered to the Father. Thus the Lord graciously shares what is His with them. So this begs the question in verse 29 to Eli. So why do you treat these sacrifices and offerings with such disrespect? Now, that phrase used, sacrifices and offerings, is in Hebrew, sefah, and minka. And it's meant to signify a lot more than what it seems as the two words form another of the several merismus that are present in this four books. Remember, a merism is a literary form that's meant to express a totality. The outer boundaries of a matter are spoken to mean all this and then everything in between. It's like saying from A to Z. We don't just mean the A and the Z, but all the letters that lay in between as well. 
So it's not only the meat sacrifices, a zeva is always meat, and not only the produce sacrifices, because a mincha is always plant life, but also everything that is God's holy property that's been treated with disrespect by Ellie and his family. In fact, the words chosen for this merism are even more interesting and all-encompassing when we understand <clears throat> that Zeva is a male gender noun and Mincha is a female gender noun. But it means even more. It even includes the ritual protocols. Everything that has to do with God's dwelling place in the sacrificial system. So the question to Eli could rightfully be paraphrased. Why have you, my high priest, shown such contempt for every element of my sacred dwelling place and the entire sacrificial system? Oh boy, this can't be good news. And then the Lord completes his indictment by saying that Eli showed more honor to his no account human sons, Hophni and Pincus, than he does to Yehoveh. You see, <clears throat> even though Eli may not have been the actual one that stole the sacrifices from the altar, or the actual one that harassed the worshippers, or the one that had illicit sex with those Levite girls on the tabernacle grounds, he was responsible for all that went on and now he's going to be held accountable. Eli had the power and the authority to stop all this. He could have and should have taken all measures necessary to end this blasphemy. But like many fathers have done since Adam, we let our emotions and our screwed up priorities rule our actions towards our families. And Eli did the same thing. Here is God's biblical hierarchy of relationship importance. Him first, parents second, spouse next, children after that. Someone please explain to me how we ever reached this place we are today where the children reign supreme. Now don't get me wrong. I'm in no way saying that we're actually to make our decisions in a totally rigid manner. Balance is always important. But just looking over the Ten Commandments clarifies what the ideal relationship hierarchy is. First, we honor a God above all. Then we honor our parents or we suffer divine consequences from it. The only mention of marriage there is in the prohibition against adultery, which means we're to be faithful to our spouses in sexual matters and in our attitudes towards them. There is no mention of children. Rather, later, there are some admonitions to discipline, discipline them on the one hand, but on the other, not to make them angry by being unfair or uncaring or overly harsh to them on the other. You know, I could talk about this for a long time, but that pulls in a direction I really don't want to go. The point is that Eli elevated the position of his sons 
and the God-ordained hierarchy of relationships above that of Yehovah, and God's calling him on the carpet for it now. Now, beginning in verse 30, come the inalterable consequences of Eli's apostasy from the ways of the Lord that Eli, above all humans, should have been aware of and scrupulous to obey. Now, remember, remembering again, that a man of God, a prophet, is pronouncing the word upon the word of God upon Eli. And by the way, this role of prophet as God's human messenger, bearing God's direct oracle, starts to play a more and more central role in the Bible from here forward. Okay? Here's the long and short of what would happen. Even though Aaron's family would stand fast all right, of the priestly clan, the Lord was going to heap divine disgrace upon those who have disgraced him. Eli's house, in other words, his family, his children, his grandchildren, who would normally have been the next generation or two or three of priests and high priests, all that would be broken. Okay. All members of his family would die young. Now, they wouldn't be removed entirely from service to the tabernacle, but they, wouldn't, they, but they would also be allowed to witness and despair over the coming fall of the sanctuary at the hands of the Philistines when the Ark of the Covenant was taken from Israel. However, since a high priest was necessary in the Lord's justice system, he would raise up a new and faithful Cohen, new and faithful priest. And this new and faithful priest would walk before, meaning he would serve before his anointed, it says. His anointed was referring to the coming king of Israel. The sign, we're told, of the manifestation of God's punishment upon Eli's family would be that on one day, both Hophni and Pincus would die. And after this, those from Eli's family who would have held the prestigious position of priests and thus be given the choice cuts of the sacrificial meats and the best produce offerings brought by the worshippers, instead, they were going to have to beg for the most menial tasks around the tabernacle just to earn a scrap of bread so they could live. Now to understand this somewhat prophetic pronouncement, prophetic because exactly how and when this was all going to come about wasn't revealed yet, we have to review the historical circumstances that come into consideration here. <clears throat> Eli was a descendant of Ithamar. Okay. Ithamar, by the way, being the youngest son of Aaron. By rights... Eli should not have held the high priesthood position because the descendants of the eldest surviving son of Aaron, Eleazar, should have borne that privilege in perpetuity. Josephus informs it that Ozi was the last known high priest in 
Eliezer's line, at least up to this point. And then for reasons unknown, Eli of the family of Ithamar was granted the position. Although this is pure speculation, almost certainly this transfer of power had to do with some kind of circumstance that none of Oz's sons was strong enough or capable enough to hold such a position of prominence as, as high priest over Israel. Because until Israel finally had a king, it fell to the high priest to be the highest authority over the twelve tribes. The judges, remember, who of course existed at the same time as high priests, were just occasional saviors who rescued their own particular tribe from some sort of predicament or another. And they, they never had any kind of far-reaching national authority over all Israel, like the high priest did. How is it that God's people could find themselves in such a dysfunctional situation as this? Remember now, we're talking about tribalism, and we're talking about the battle for position, and therefore the power struggles never end. The two great sects of Islam today, the Sunnis and the Shia, who have warred against one another for 1,300 years, are the result of tribal conflicts over who ought to succeed Muhammad. So the high priesthood of Israel, very early on, somehow became mired in political and tribal considerations. Now, in speculating on how it is that Eli actually came into power, we know that the family line of Eleazar didn't end. However, because in David's time, Zadok, who was a descendant of Eleazar, did become a high priest and served as a co-high priest with Abiathar and then Ahimelech, all right, who were descendants of Eli, what a mess, dueling high priests. All right. We have this situation to where we have multiple high priests serving simultaneously as rivals. Okay. Later we're going to see that the high priest Abiatar, okay, was deposed. And so Zadok alone was the high priest for a while. But then King Solomon turns around, reinstates Abiatar, and deposes Zadok. You don't think there was some hardball politics going on 3,000 years ago? Now, what we're going to read in the coming chapters is that after this pronouncement through this man of God, through this prophet, upon Eli by God, the priesthood lost virtually all authority and veracity. And soon Samuel, who was kind of a hybrid priest and judge and prophet, he became the highest authority figure, both politically and religious, in Israel. However, since Samuel wasn't a legitimate priest by any traditional priestly bloodline, 
This faithful priest that's being talked about in verse 35 that God would raise up to serve as anointed could not possibly have been Samuel. Most Jewish sages agree that that prophesied faithful priest that God would raise up was Sadok. Even more, Eli was going to live to see his two sons die. In a couple of chapters, we're going to read about the loss of the Ark of the Covenant to the Philistines in battle. And in that battle, Hophni and Pincus were killed on the same day along with 30,000 Israelite soldiers. So what we have here is again exactly like it was spoken of in Hannah's song that started this chapter. The Lord will reverse the fortunes of men according to His will and purposes. The Almighty God weighed, He takan, Eli's family. And He took action according to His justice. He made the mighty into the lowly. He brought the lowly into power. Eli's descendants would have to beg for bread, but the descendants of Eleazar, who had been denied their rightful position as high priests, would, starting with Zadok, again have power, at least for a time. We'll start chapter 3 next week and see this young Samuel grow in stature in God's eyes and then begin to take on his role as the ultimate earthly authority over the 12 tribes.